Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, thanks again for joining. So we've got a great podcast for you today since we'll be rounding out the papulosquamous disorders by discussing one of the more impressive rashes that can cover people from head to toe. We're talking about erythroderma. These patients are often miserable and their erythroderma can have a wide variety of underlying etiologies which can be life-threatening. So we'll spend some extra time giving you a good differential and go over how to evaluate and work up these patients. You better listen closely. We're not playing any games today. Per usual, let's start by quickly reviewing our reaction patterns. I hope by this point you're rolling your eyes and saying not again because that means that you've got it down. So what are your five main reaction patterns? Hopefully you remembered papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous disorders. Again, we break down the papulosquamous rashes into five subcategories. One, psoriasiform, which includes psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, mycosis fungoides, small and large plaque parapsoriasis, and pityriasis rubropilaris. Two, pityriasiform, which includes pityriasis rosea, secondary syphilis, and tinea versicolor. Three, lichenoid. Four, annular, including tinea, subacute cutaneous lupus, and erythema annularis centrifugum. And five, erythroderma, which we'll be discussing today. Before we start, I'll mention our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. Okay, let's talk erythroderma. It is also known as exfoliative dermatitis, and it is a descriptive term for patients who have erythema and scaling affecting more than 80 to 90% of their body surface area, regardless of the cause. So what are the main causes of erythroderma? If you tell me eczema, you will fail this rotation. I want you to remember that most cases of erythroderma are due to a pre-existing condition like psoriasis or atopic dermatitis, which spreads to involve that 80-90% to 90% of body surface area. In order to help you remember the many causes for erythroderma, I've broken them into seven sub-subcategories for you, like a dream within a dream. This is the most important part to remember from this episode, because the broader differential you have, the better clinician you will be. So here we go. These subcategories of causes for erythroderma are 1. The papulosquamous disorders psoriasis and pityriasis rubropilaris. 2. Dermatitis, which includes atopic, allergic contact, seborrheic, and chronic actinic dermatitis. 3. Drug reactions. 4. Cutaneous T-cell lymphomas such as Cesare syndrome or erythrodermic mycosis fungoides. 5. Infections like viral exanthems, Norwegian scabies, and staph scalded skin syndrome. 6. Autoimmune conditions such as lupus, graft-versus-host disease, and blistering diseases such as bullous pemphigoid. And 7. Physical causes such as burns. Again, these seven main causes of erythroderma are 1. The papulosquamous disorders psoriasis and pityriasis rubropilaris. 2. Dermatitis, including atopic, allergic contact, seborrheic, and chronic actinic dermatitis. 3. Drug reactions. 4. Cutaneous T-cell lymphomas such as Cesare syndrome or erythrodermic mycosis fungoides. 5. Infections like viral exanthems, Norwegian scabies, and staph scalded skin syndrome. 
Six, autoimmune conditions such as lupus, graft-versus-host disease, and bolus pemphigoid. And finally, seven, the physical causes such as burns. It is critical to remember that at least 50% of cases of erythroderma are caused by pre-existing rashes that worsen. And also recognize that erythroderma in children may also be caused by immunodeficiencies such as Omen syndrome, spelled O-M-E-N-N apostrophe S, Omen syndrome. However, the rest of this episode will focus on erythroderma in adults. So what is the most common cause of erythroderma? It's actually psoriasis, which makes up 20% of erythroderma cases. These patients typically have pre-existing psoriasis, which flares in response to withdrawing a treatment such as steroids, cyclosporine, or methotrexate, or by exposure to one or more triggers for psoriasis. And what might some of those triggers for psoriasis be, if in fact that craft beer-saturated brain of yours can remember anything I've taught you? Remember our mnemonic sick lab, with S referring to smoking and stress, I for infections such as strep, C for hypocalcemia, which can lead to pustular psoriasis, and K for kebnerization, such as sunburns or vigorously trying to scrub off the skin's scales. And then the lab refers to the medications lithium, antimalarials, ACE inhibitors, and beta blockers. Some other psoriasis triggers and associations that don't fit into the sick lab mnemonic include alcohol, obesity, and other medications including NSAIDs, terbinafine, and the paradoxical psoriasis flares caused by TNF-alpha inhibitors. Besides psoriasis, remember that the other papulosquamous disorder, pityriasis rubripilaris, can also cause erythroderma less commonly. You can brush up on PRP in episode 8. If I say islands of sparing and you think bachelor in paradise, we're going to have a problem. Now on to subcategory number two for erythroderma causes, which are the various forms of dermatitis, including atopic dermatitis, making up around 9% of all cases, allergic contact dermatitis at around 6% of cases, seborrheic dermatitis at 4% of cases, and chronic actinic dermatitis at 3%. And then there's rare cases of stasis dermatitis with a profound secondary id reaction that leads to erythroderma. Let's briefly touch on some pearls for each of these, though. Patients with atopic dermatitis often have a history of one or more features of the atopic triad, which includes atopic dermatitis, hay fever, and asthma. They also usually have more severe itching than other forms of erythroderma. Okay, you little postural, what labs can suggest that erythroderma is caused by atopic dermatitis? The answer is an elevated IgE level and an eosinophilia. Like psoriasis, these atopic dermatitis patients may also flare due to withdrawal of systemic treatments such as steroids, along with exposure to triggers for atopic dermatitis, which include stress, smoking, fragrances, fabrics like wool, food allergens, pet dander, and dry environments. The next type of dermatitis that can lead to erythroderma is allergic contact dermatitis, which is a type 4 hypersensitivity where T-cells are sensitized to an allergen that is airborne or physically contacting the skin. There are multiple reports of erythroderma caused by allergic contact dermatitis due to the parthenium plant in India. I'm no botanist, but I know my dermatology-related plant species, and you should too. 
Besides atopic and allergic contact dermatitis, erythroderma can also be caused by seborrheic dermatitis, which can be much more severe in patients with neurologic conditions such as Parkinson's disease or in HIV patients. And finally, we have chronic actinic dermatitis, which thankfully has a descriptive name. It is chronic, it is actinic, therefore it shows up in sun-exposed areas and spares sun-protected areas such as the skin folds, and it is a dermatitis that can take on acute, subacute, and chronic morphologies. We'll describe these morphologies of eczema more in depth in the Eczema Podcast. Chronic actinic dermatitis is classically seen in men over the age of 50 and can be caused by a combination of UVA, UVB, and visible light. These patients have an increased ratio of CD8 to CD4 cells, which is the opposite to Cesare syndrome, which has an increased CD4 to CD8 ratio. Just checking in to ensure that you're still listening, what types of dermatitis can cause urethroderma? Remember, atopic dermatitis, allergic contact dermatitis, seborrheic dermatitis, chronic actinic dermatitis, and then rarely stasis dermatitis with a profound id reaction. The third cause for erythroderma is drugs, causing around 19% of cases. These drug reactions include Stevens-Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, DRESS syndrome, which stands for drug reactions with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, and lastly, the plain old everyday drug rashes. There is a massive list of medications that can lead to erythroderma, but the most common culprits are similar to those that cause Steven-Johnson syndrome, which include allopurinol, sulfa drugs like Bactrim, and anti-seizure medications like phenytoin. Interestingly, HIV patients are more likely to have drugs as a cause of their erythroderma, whether it is the meds we just mentioned or their antiretroviral therapies. So that covers the first three causes of erythroderma. One, psoriasis and PRP. Two, the various forms of dermatitis. And three, drugs. The fourth subcategory of erythroderma causes is cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, which makes up around 8% of cases overall. These can further be subdivided into Cesare syndrome and erythrodermic mycosis fungoides. Cesare syndrome is classically considered the leukemic variant of mycosis fungoides. A second-year medical student will know this one. What is the triad for Cesare syndrome? Cesare syndrome has the triad of erythroderma, diffuse lymphadenopathy, and malignant T-cells known as Cesare cells that are located in the skin, lymph nodes, and blood. Again, the triad for Cesare syndrome includes erythroderma, diffuse lymphadenopathy, and malignant T-cells known as Cesare cells in the skin, lymph nodes, and blood. These Cesare cells are atypical lymphocytes with a cerebriform or convoluted appearing nucleus. For the diagnosis of Cesare syndrome, you need at least 1,000 of these Cesare cells per microliter or one of the following. 1. An increased CD4 to CD8 ratio greater than 10, or 2. Increased amounts of abnormal CD4 cells that are either CD7 negative or CD26 negative. Clinically, patients with Cesare syndrome are often erythrodermic from the get-go, which is different from erythrodermic mycosis fungoides, where patients have pre-existing patches or plaques of MF that then progress to erythroderma without meeting the criteria for Cesare syndrome. As for Cesare syndrome patients, they often have severe itching similar to that of erythrodermic atopic dermatitis. Other features of Cesare syndrome include alopecia, nail dystrophy, and leonine facies. Don't 
ever mention a clinical presentation like Leonine Faces and not have a differential ready? You fool. Give me some other causes for Leonine Faces. For Leonine Faces, remember the acronym PALMS to remember P for Paget's disease of the bone, A for amyloidosis, L for lepromatous leprosy, lymphoma, and leishmaniasis, M for mycosis fungoides, and S for sarcoidosis and sclero-myxedema. Again, for your leonine facies differential, remember the acronym PALMS to remember P for Paget's disease of the bone, A for amyloidosis, L for lepromatous leprosy, lymphoma, and leishmaniasis, M for mycosis fungoides, and S for sarcoidosis and sclero-myxedema. But getting back to Cesare syndrome, Remember that these patients are also prone to viral and bacterial infections due to their immune dysfunction. Out of all the cases of erythroderma we'll discuss, Cesare syndrome is obviously much more serious and is therefore a diagnosis that we cannot miss. So that's the first four causes for erythroderma. In the interest of time, I will quick sum them up along with our final subcategories. That way we can talk about some of the clinical features and then see a patient with Dr. Grumpy Pants. I'm waiting, you flaming pustule. The seven groups of causes for erythroderma include 1. The papulosquamous disorders psoriasis and pityriasis rubropilaris, 2. Dermatitis, which includes atopic, allergic contact, seborrheic, and chronic actinic dermatitis, 3. Drug reactions, including Stevens-Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, dress syndrome, and regular drug exanthems, 4. Cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, which include Cesare syndrome and erythrodermic mycosis fungoides, 5. Infections like viral exanthems, Norwegian scabies, and staph scalded skin syndrome. 6. Autoimmune conditions such as lupus, graft-versus-host disease, and blistering diseases such as bullous pemphigoid. And 7. Physical causes such as burns. Despite all of these causes of erythroderma, about a quarter of cases end up being idiopathic. I also want to add the disclaimer that I know that graft-versus-host disease isn't technically autoimmune, but I mention it there since there's still some funky stuff going on with the immune system. People who diagnose something as idiopathic basically are idiots and have no idea what is going on. I want you to find the cause of that erythroderma and find it now. So tell me, what signs and symptoms will these erythrodermic patients have regardless of the etiology? The extensive vasodilation in the skin decreases peripheral resistance and can lead to tachycardia and even high-output cardiac failure resulting in peripheral edema. This edema can also be worsened by low albumin levels in erythroderma patients, which makes sense because many of them are shedding lots of excessive scales which all contain proteins themselves. 9 out of 10 times when we have an erythrodermic patient in the office, we're grabbing the broom after they leave to sweep up the scales that they've left all over the floor. So besides the tachycardia and edema, which can be worsened by hypoalbuminemia, the extra blood flow in the skin can also disrupt thermoregulation, leading to hyperthermia or hypothermia. However, patients will often complain of having chills. Some other signs and symptoms of erythroderma, specifically erythrodermic psoriasis patients, include weight loss, joint pain, nail changes, and palmo plantar changes. Alright, so let's pretend you're a first-year dermatology resident, it's your first day on call, and you get this call from your answering service just as you get home from another evening consult. Doctor, this is the service. I called you earlier about that unchanged skin lesion that's been present for 10 years that ended up being a seborrheic keratosis. 
Oh no! I got another console for you. This time, it's a 50-year-old male in room 507 with a rash, a bad rash, from head to toe. They say it might be a Stevie Johnson syndrome. Have a wonderful Labor Day, Doctor! Well, so much for sitting down for your perfect Home Alone-style macaroni and cheese dinner. But let's go over how to do a thorough physical and history on an erythrodermic patient so you can give a good presentation to Dr. G when the time comes. You go to the patient's bedside, you introduce yourself, you notice a scaly rash on the patient's arms and legs that are exposed, and you ask to take a quick look in the patient's eyes, nose, and mouth. They are perfect, no lesions, and the patient is not toxic appearing. You can breathe a sigh of relief that it is highly unlikely that this is a Stevens-Johnson syndrome patient, and you can start getting the rest of your history. As always, get your classic OPQRSTs, and if you're not sure what this means, you can always check back to episode 2 on the dermatologic H&P. As far as the HPI goes, the onset of the rash is very important. Did it start gradually or did it start suddenly? A more sudden onset is suggestive of drugs as the causative or triggering factor. Then ask where on the body and how did the rash start. If it started with their usual lesions of atopic dermatitis or psoriasis and eventually spread elsewhere, that obviously clues you in. If it started on sun-exposed areas and spared the sun-protected areas, you might think about chronic actinic dermatitis. And if it started as a morbilliform eruption, you would think more bug and drug, with bug referring to infections such as viral exanthems and drugs obviously referring to medication reactions. It's also helpful to ask patients if they took any selfies of the rash when it started for hints on the rash morphology and distribution. You kids and your selfies. Then be sure to ask about a personal or family history of the atopic triad, atopic dermatitis, seasonal allergies or hay fever, and asthma. When you get to your review of systems, never ever forget to ask about pruritus, which you should be asking all of your patients with rashes anyways. While most erythrodermic patients are itchy, it can be especially severe in patients with the various forms of dermatitis such as atopic dermatitis or in Cesare syndrome patients. Other important questions in the review of systems include joint pain, which is more suggestive of psoriasis, and fevers, which argues against psoriasis. Then as always, make sure to review the patient's past medical and surgical history, medications, and social history including recent travel, occupational exposures, pets, etc. So next, let's move on to our head-to-toe exam. Ah, physical examination. Is that even taught in medical schools anymore? Does the rash affect the face? If so, it makes psoriasis much less likely. Next, make sure to examine the ocular and oral mucosa, as I mentioned earlier, for any signs of Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Facial edema can be suggestive of a drug reaction or DRESS syndrome, which is now referred to as Drug-Induced Hypersensitivity Syndrome, aka DIHS. You'll also want to examine the patient's hands for signs of the waxy keratoderma of Pityriasis rubripilaris, and while you're there, look at the nails for the classic signs of psoriasis such as pitting, onycholysis, and oil spots. Then, look closely at the rash itself. Note its color because a more violaceous color can suggest CTCL, while a salmon color is characteristic of Pityriasis rubripilaris. Then look for blisters suggestive of bullous pemphigoid, or follicular plugging and papules on the elbows, dorsal fingers, and knees that is suggestive of PRP, which remember can also have islands of sparing. Then take a close look at the scale. Larger areas of peeling are suggestive of an acute cause like a drug reaction, whereas fine scaling can be seen in atopic dermatitis or generalized tinea infections. 
You will also want to do a thorough lymph node exam. While peripheral lymphadenopathy is very common in erythroderma patients regardless of the cause, it can clue you in towards a malignancy like Cesare syndrome more so than a pre-existing dermatosis like psoriasis. Oh, well, so your exam is worthless. What labs do you want to draw? How about a CMP, CBC, IgE levels, an ANA, peripheral blood smear, and flow cytometry? A CMP is important for monitoring electrolyte imbalances, and elevated LFTs could be suggestive of DRESS syndrome. A CBC could show an eosinophilia suggestive of a drug-related cause or possibly atopic dermatitis. Elevated serum IgE levels are also suggestive of atopic dermatitis as well. A high titer ANA would suggest autoimmune diseases like lupus or dermatomyositis, but keep in mind that healthy people can have a positive low titer ANA, with roughly 20% of healthy people having a 1 to 40 ANA titer, 10% with 1 to 80, and 5% with 1 to 160 ANA titers. If you're worried about Cesare syndrome, a peripheral blood smear can be done to look for Cesare cells. Flow cytometry may also be done for these patients to look for an elevated CD4 to CD8 ratio greater than 10 to 1. Keep in mind that a normal ratio is around 1 to 1, and also remember that a higher ratio of CD8 cells would support a diagnosis of chronic actinic dermatitis if you're worried about it. Okay, what else could you test for in these erythrodermic patients? The easy answer would be to take multiple skin biopsies, which is often helpful for suggesting the underlying etiology, but keep in mind that it can be very nonspecific in around one-third of patients. If you're worried about superinfection, blood cultures or bacterial and viral culture swabs should be performed as well. If the rash is scaly as it often is, you can also do a KOH study to rule out a diffuse dermatophyte infection. I've talked to other dermatologists who have been referred these erythrodermic patients that aren't getting better, and the diagnosis was made with a simple KOH that was loaded with hyphae. If lymphadenopathy is present, you may also want to consider a referral for a lymph node biopsy to rule out a lymphoma or consider a PET-CT scan as well. Alright, so let's get back to our hospital patient. He has a pretty nondescript story, with a gradual onset of a mildly pruritic eruption that started on his arms and progressed to involve most of his body over the course of several weeks without any new environmental exposures or systemic symptoms besides chills. On exam, he has a diffuse, eczematous eruption with fine scale from the neck down, no facial swelling, no mucosal changes, no nail changes, and no lymphadenopathy. You perform two punch biopsies and you order some basic labs including blood cultures, CBC, CMP, IgE levels, and an ANA, and decide to get this patient some symptomatic relief while you await the biopsy results. And how do you plan to accomplish that by some strange Hufflepuff Harry Potter hocus pocus? Lemgardia leviosa never cured any skin disease. There are certain things you will do for all erythrodermic patients, such as monitor and replace any electrolyte imbalances, treat any infections that are detected, and make sure to keep these patients warm enough because they will often have chills. And obviously you want to treat the underlying cause if you are able to clinch a diagnosis. Psoriasis patients may need more systemic therapies like UVB, acetretin, or the faster-acting cyclosporin, whereas a Cesare syndrome patient will be treated much differently depending on the stage of their disease. So let's say our patient had erythrodermic atopic dermatitis, since we will offer many of these treatments to all patients with erythroderma. These erythrodermic patients will need to be using emollients diffusely, which will often include a class 6 to class 4 topical steroid, depending on how inflamed or itchy their skin is. 
If secondary infection is present, you want to also mix in a topical antibiotic like mupirocin or recommend bleach baths or washing with antibacterials like chlorhexidine, aka Hibiclens. When patients' pruritus is really bad, wet dressings can be very soothing for these patients as well. Other treatments that may help the pruritus include sedating antihistamines like Benadryl or hydroxazine. And when these simple treatments aren't quite cutting it, you can reach for more systemic agents like prednisone, cyclosporin, or methotrexate. Prednisone is typically given at 0.5 to 1 mg per kg per day for 7 to 10 days and then slowly tapered to minimize the risk of rebound. Remember that these patients on prednisone for more than a few weeks will also need blood pressure and glucose monitoring, especially if they're diabetic patients, along with calcium and vitamin D supplementation to prevent osteoporosis and GI prophylaxis to prevent peptic ulcers. I usually recommend around 1,000 international units of vitamin D per day along with 1,000 milligrams of calcium daily. GI prophylaxis can be done using proton pump inhibitors like omeprazole or the H2 blockers like famotidine. Okay, my friends, so that's what I've got for you for erythroderma. I know this is a big episode, so let's take a deep breath, let's clear our minds, and let's bring it all home with a little summary action. How about a spell that will open your eyes? Maybe then you'll make a diagnosis. Orbicularis oculi. Erythroderma is a descriptive term for patients who have erythema and scaling affecting more than 80 to 90% of their body surface area. There can be numerous underlying causes for erythroderma, so we broke them into seven groups. One, the papulosquamous disorders, psoriasis and pityriasis rubropilaris. Two, dermatitis, including atopic, allergic contact, seborrheic, and chronic actinic dermatitis. Three, drug reactions like SJS, TEN, DRESS syndrome, aka drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome, and then regular drug exanthems. 4. Cutaneous T-cell lymphomas such as Cesare syndrome or erythrodermic mycosis fungoides. 5. Infections like viral exanthems, Norwegian scabies, and staph scalded skin syndrome. 6. Autoimmune conditions such as lupus, graft-versus-host disease, and bullous pemphigoid. And 7. Physical causes such as burns. When evaluating and diagnosing these patients, some important questions include where on the body the rash started the appearance of the rash at onset, remembering that morbilliform rashes suggest a drug or viral rash, any history of psoriasis or the atopic triad, and then finally a good review of systems including severe pruritus that suggest atopic dermatitis or Cesare syndrome, joint pain which suggests psoriasis, and fevers which argues against psoriasis. On our head-to-toe exam, facial skin involvement will also argue against psoriasis. And lastly, remember to look for the facial edema of dress syndrome, mucosal changes, keratoderma that suggests PRP, lymphadenopathy, and take special note of the rash's distribution, color, and quality of the scale. Some labs that you might want to draw include a CMP, CBC, IgE levels, blood cultures, an ANA, peripheral blood smear, and flow cytometry. Other workup includes skin biopsies, culture swabs, KOH scrapings, and possibly further malignancy workup like a PET-CT or lymph node biopsy. Treatment is aimed at the underlying cause of erythroderma, but all patients will need to be kept warm and cozy and will need electrolyte monitoring, treatment of secondary infections, diffuse use of emollients or topical steroids, antihistamines for pruritus, and possibly systemic treatments like prednisone with a slow taper. And that's it for this episode and for the papulosquamous disorders. One reaction pattern down, four to go, so give yourselves a big pat on the back. 
in the next episode, we will start going through our second reaction pattern, the eczematous rashes. Doctor, I have another consult for you. We have a patient who fell asleep on a bed of poison ivy that miraculously has a rash. Ta-ta! All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.